Hello and welcome to this new season of Sound Strategic, the podcast of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. I am Antonio Sampaio, and if you're scratching your head at wondering who is this person, I am the new host of Sound Strategic alongside uh, two colleagues who will introduce themselves right now, Maya. Hello, I'm Maya Nowens, the Research Fellow for Chinese Defense Policy and Military Modernization at the Institute. And I'm Robert Ward, and I'm the Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy and the Japan Chair at the Institute. Thank you very much. So um, on this podcast, we will discuss the repercussions of the recent elections in Taiwan and what it means for China in the region. We also pick the brain of Maya, our China expert, uh, on President Xi Jinping's bad year, in which Taiwan seemed to move further away from it. Hong Kong has been in turmoil and also discuss the effects of the outbreak of the coronavirus um, on China and the region. On the 11th of January, presidential elections in Taiwan sent a strong message to China that the island is not really buying the one country, two systems principle that Beijing offers as a potential model to absorb a liberal democracy into its communist fold. President Tsai Ing-wen was re-elected with 57% of the vote. This result, alongside the record 8.2 million people that went to the polls, shows a strong support for President Tsai's Democratic Progressive Party, uh, which, as the name suggests, opposes closer ties with China. So let's discuss this with uh, first Maya, uh, our research fellow for Chinese defense policy and military modernization. Um, there was a moment in this election in which, um, during the election campaign, that President uh, Tsai Ing-wen's lead was narrower than the final result. So I wonder if this means that the Chinese population is still in two minds about how to approach China and how damaging have the uh, Hong Kong protests been on the China cause, on the China-friendly camp in Taiwan. That's a really great question, Antonio. I think I'm going to break it down, though. So I think we need to be careful to understand that not every election in Taiwan is about its relationship with the mainland. Uh, in the 2018 local elections that we saw Thai, um, the DPP run against the KMT, so the DPP is the more known as the more um, international friendly, um, leaning away from China, moving towards diversification party, the Democratic Progressive Party, headed by President Tsai Ing-wen. The other main party in Taiwan is the Kuomintang, which is the uh, Chinese nationalist party that uh, moved from uh, mainland China and took up post in Taiwan after the um, uh, war with the communists in, in China in, 19, uh, in the late 1940s. Um, and they're seen as more um, China-friendly and more pro-China leaning. Um, but in 2018, the local election showed that the DPP lost a lot of seats uh, and um, this was mainly due to uh, not only a um, more populist stance on the Kuomintang, the KMT side, um, but really a dissatisfaction in Taiwan about the first two years of her presidency. Um, President Tsai Ing-wen uh, has not only promoted a more international stance for Taiwan, but she's also had to promote and try to undertake really difficult policy decisions about things like pension reform that people were quite unhappy about. These are policies that obviously 
um, upset people uh, more personally than others. There was dissatisfaction with the growth of the economy, which was not as fast as people had hoped. So there was a lot more at stake than just the uh, the relationship across the Taiwan Strait. Um, the effect of the protests in Hong Kong, of course, I think is unquestionable at the moment. Um, in 2019, President Xi uh, started the year off with a speech directed at Taiwan to state that the one country, two system solution is the only viable option for Taiwan going forward and that unification with the mainland was a um, unquestionable uh, fact, histor- uh, fact for the future. Um, and the Taiwanese, uh, led by President uh, Tsai, but also leaders in the KMT party, really uh, riled against this. Uh, President Xi had said that all options were on the table, including force. So that set the tone. And then I think over 2019, what we saw was that uh, the impact of the protests in Hong Kong took a lot more attention away from things like the economy in from the Taiwanese uh, pers- uh, public opinions perspective. So they started weighing a lot more heavily. Um, so yes, they absolutely had a role to play. And as you explain in a blog post that has been published in the ISS uh, webpage, both this pressure um, exerted by Beijing and the protests in Hong Kong made the, uh, as you just said, the anti-China camps victory a bit easier. Um, but in terms of the, uh, the 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 way forward, what impact do you think this uh, has had on ta- this election has had on Taiwan-China relations? This re-election of the uh, anti-China camp can relations get even worse than they already are? I think relations can usually get worse than they already are um, in many situations. In the at the moment, the response from Beijing, I think, has been very cautious to the uh, to the election results. So, from Beijing's perspective, we've seen um, the foreign ministry um, spokespersons come out and say that. Um, everybody should remember and adhere to the one China policy in principle. Um, remember that Taiwan is an inalienable part of um, the People's Republic of China. But other than that, we haven't really seen a lot of movement. Um, up until a few months before the elections on January 11th, um, the People's Liberation Army had been quite um, active around the island, sailing through the Taiwan Strait, um, and we haven't. We saw a slowdown leading up to the elections in kind of a recognition that putting too much military uh, pressure on the island, signaling too aggressively in a military way, would dissuade voters from um, voting for the KMT party. Now we haven't seen an uptake in military aggression towards the island since then. Um, and I think there is a, a, a rethink at the moment, perhaps, in Beijing of what to do next. Um, I think it will be um, difficult for President Xi to continue to put military pressure that has shown to not be effective. Um, there might be an increased number of poaching of diplomatic allies away from Taiwan, countries that recognize Taiwan as an independent country. That policy might continue over the next coming years to poach the remaining allies that Taiwan has left. Um, Economic pressures will uh, possibly play, but really there's a limited set of options here for Beijing. Um, So it is something that we'll have to keep watching. 
Do you think that U.S. foreign policy has anything to do with this recent escalation in rhetoric from Beijing, that they feel that they are now a bit more have a bit more leverage to uh, because of the Trump administration and the uh, the way it has withdrawn from some traditional foreign policy positions and um, you know alliances that China feels that it can exert more pressure on Taiwan. Uh, that's a great question, but of course uh, we have to balance that narrative with the with the recognition that there is now bipartisan support for Taiwan within the uh, legislative branch uh, in the United States. So whereas um, the Trump administration might be more, uh, how should I say? Uh, unorthodox. Unorthodox, <laughs> thank you, great word, in its approach towards foreign policy, um, the the U.S. Congress has enacted a number of policies that are seen as incredibly friendly towards Taiwan and in support of Taiwan, including in supporting Taiwan's participation in international organizations, um, approval of potential arms sales to Taiwan, um, the approval of uh, sending more high-level visitors, uh, official government visitors to Taiwan. So there's, um, I think, a, a balance there that needs to be struck. And of course, all of this is happening at a time when there's a discussion in the international atmosphere, in the international uh, sphere of um, the nature of the Chinese regime, um, support for the rules-based international order, uh, a coalition, uh, I suppose, of... Um, liberal democracies. Um, so I think a lot of different parts are moving at the same time, and we can't just look at the Trump administration's bellicose uh, statements. Um, as a matter of context, for those out there, including myself, who are not uh, um, East Asia or, or, or China uh, um, observers all the time, um, how much of an escalation was this um, recent uh, comments by Xi Jinping that reunification is inevitable, that uh, it must happen and will happen uh, in, in the context of, I don't know, recent years or, or even the past decade. Has, has, how much alarm did it cause, especially in Taiwan? I think the alarm in Taiwan was really caused by the statement of President Xi Jinping that all methods of reunification were on the table. So mm. the, the the phrasing, not of reunification, but rather the means to reunification were what really stirred a lot of anxiety in Taiwan. And, um, you know, that one country, two systems ultimately might not be in Taiwan's favor or might actually be proven impossible uh, when looking at the Hong Kong example. Yeah, uh, speaking of the Hong Kong example, um, how big of a problem um, uh, for Xi Jinping is um, is it that the one country, two systems framework slash philosophy has been challenged so visibly in both Hong Kong and Taiwan? Does the Taiwan election provide further impetus, for instance, uh, for unrest in China? So I think the um, current situation in Hong Kong has shown the limits of one country, two systems, and what that actually means in terms of preserving a separate system from the mainland. And that um, is, again, uh, strengthened by the immense success of the Democratic Progressive Party's election victory in Taiwan. So I, I think uh, in both Hong Kong and in Taiwan, there would be no... Um, no thought, I suppose, that um, one country, two systems is, is a viable solution for Taiwan anymore. Um, I mean, in Hong Kong, we've heard statements, uh, slogans come out during the protests of 
today Hong Kong, tomorrow Taiwan. And at the end of um, Tsai's uh, election campaign in the victory, we saw that slogan reversed in Taiwan by saying, you know, today Taiwan uh, is potentially a hope for Hong Kong's tomorrow. So the from my perspective, clever play on words there. But um, but I think, yeah, there has been a shift in in thinking on, on one country, two systems. And Taiwan's election results will, I think, be a difficult challenge for Xi Jinping. He has promised that reunification will happen before 2049 because that is integral to uh, achieving the China dream, as he puts it. Um, the China dream cannot be achieved without territorial integrity of uh, the People's Republic of China, of which they consider Taiwan to be a part. So uh, this needs to be delivered on, and um, at the moment, that's not going very well. So I think President Xi, um, though who is really to say, will uh, be facing some challenges internally with this election result and with the protests in Hong Kong and how those have been handled. Um, I think in Hong Kong, the protests are slowing down at the moment from what we saw at the height um, last year in, in the third and fourth quarter. Um, and yet, you know, there are all kinds of challenges that, that pose difficulties for him and his, uh, his, his rule. He has changed the Chinese political system for one of one based on uh, consensus uh, decision-making to one where he heads most organizations and has the final say. Um, so in that type of situation, if things go wrong, you do face challenges and questions of, of, of why things went wrong. Thank you. So in the next section, we will be discussing the uh, very, uh, also very important topic of the coronavirus crisis in China. Now, on top of the not insignificant political problems faced by Xi Jinping, China, of course, uh, is facing a devastating coronavirus um, epidemic with 170 people dead and well over 7,000 cases confirmed. Entire megacities such as Wuhan, uh, with its 11 million people, have been on lockdown. So, um, Robert, um, surely this uh, must have some pretty significant economic um, impact on China and the region. Well, Antonio, as you, as you said at the beginning, I mean, Xi Jinping really has had an absolutely terrible year um, to start with. And he had a pretty bad year last year with the trade war, and that had a bad impact on the Chinese economy. And just as things were started, starting to look a little bit better, phase one of the trade deal and so on, just giving people a little bit more confidence, this hits. Um, this year is important, of course, because um, sort of politically, uh, the target for doubling GDP um, in 10 years um, has to be done in time for the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party in 2021. So there's also political um, sort of things at stake here. And, uh, and of course, this hitting, um, this, this coronavirus uh, crisis hitting now, particularly in the Chinese New Year period, this is a critical time for Chinese consumption. It's a critical time for restaurants, entertainment, uh, airlines, uh, retail, of course, um, and given, as you said, you've got the entire city of Wuhan in lockdown, that's 11 million people. I think the broader quarantine is around 45 million uh, people. Um, clearly, there's going to be a significant hit in, in Q1 um, to growth and probably um, in Q2 uh, as well. One thing I'm looking at is the hit to supply chains within China. Um, factories are not opening for obvious reasons because people can't move around. Um, and, of course, 
is particularly for smaller uh, companies, I think there's a sort of quite a significant risk that, that some of these companies will struggle um, economically if they can't get their workers and can't get their production going. So within China, um, for Chinese uh, GDP, I think we're looking at quite a significant hit to, to Q1, uh, probably Q2 as well. Um, if you look at SARS, the, 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 the SARS outbreak um, beginning of the 2000s, um, the lesson there was that the hit is quite severe while the, um, while the virus is at its peak, but then actually things do snap back uh, relatively quickly. The unknown here, of course, is, is once this, this virus runs its course, how quickly China, the economy, will, will, will snap back. Of course, it's not just China as well that's having the um, that, that's going to suffer from this. Obviously, the sort of China is the centre of the storm, but many countries in the region depend on Chinese uh, inbound tourism. Uh, Japan, for example, around 30% of uh, inbound tourism into Japan is from China. Uh, Thailand, similar. Vietnam, similar as well. So many of the businesses, hotels, airlines, and so on that depend on the flow of Chinese tourists, particularly at the Chinese New Year period, uh, will also, so I think, have a significant uh, economic hit. And of course, economic growth in China is like in many countries, but especially, I think, due to the... Um, um, authoritarian uh, character of, of, of its politics um, plays an important role in uh, maintaining internal stability and um, how, how damaging do you see uh, economic uh, deceleration of this magnitude uh, for the internal politics in China um, and, and d d as you said it's difficult to predict but um, does it have, is there room to believe that this is uh, going to have some more longer-term impact on China's economic performance? Well, over the very short term, one thing I'm going to be looking at is, is how credible are the GDP data that, that are released for Q1 and Q2. As is well known, that there's, there's lots, there are lots of doubts around the, the sort of veracity, credibility of Chinese data. Um, everyone can see that there's a severe economic impact at the moment and over the next few weeks, months. Um, how, how will the Chinese government sort of factor that in? Will they actually tell it as it is? So that's, that's one thing. Um, the other thing I think is around um, sort of anger over governance uh, in China. So the, the Chinese government, obviously, you know, there's a heroic effort at the moment underway to try and contain this, build new hospitals and so on. But this, the start was quite slow. Um, and I think there's going to be, there will be people within China, sort of, um, uh, sort of groups within China, looking at the government and thinking, well, the, the the trade war wasn't managed very well. Lots of concessions there to to Trump. Hong Kong is still bubbling. What's going on there? Taiwan, as Mia said, um, is really gone the other direction. And now we've got this. So is there a problem with the, you know, with 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 the core here? So I think for Xi Jinping, there, there'll be an urgent sort of political need to try and stabilize and try and get on top of this as quickly as he can. Now, another interesting intersection of economics and, and, and politics, and uh, unfortunately also the uh, epidemic and, and potential pandemic in the future uh, of the coronavirus. Um, uh, Maya, the, um, the way that Taiwan is not included in international organizations and regional organizations also has uh, a role to play in the responses and potentially a negative role to play in the responses to, to the virus, right? Yeah, that's right. So Taiwan, under the pre previous uh, KMT government, was allowed observer participation and observer membership 
of certain UN bodies of which Taiwan does not have its own um, representation. Um, that included the World Health Assembly, that also included the International Civil Aviation Organization, which we all know are UN bodies, um, and which are really important for information sharing and, and best practices being shared across countries um, when it comes to things like this. Taiwan was, of course, hit by SARS in 2002 and 2003 as well, and actually managed to... Um, to deal with that uh, epidemic in Taiwan quite successfully and therefore has a lot of lessons to share, it, it says. Um, but at the moment, under President Tsai Ing-wen's uh, uh, administration and governance, there's no seat for Taiwan anymore as an observer member at the WHA or the uh, International Civil Aviation Organization. So um, analysts and the Taiwan government and other governments on behalf of Taiwan are currently lobbying for Taiwan to uh, regain a seat as an observer member, not a full member, but an observer member at least at these organizations so that it can learn what's happening in other countries and also share information with them about what's happening in Taiwan, which has a confirmed case of the Wuhan virus. Thank you. So um, coming up, we'll discuss more about who we are and um, learn more about your three hosts for the next year or so. In this section, um, we're going to get to know our two um, new uh, podcast uh, co-hosts a little bit better. Um, Mia, just by way of uh, sort of background to what uh, really motivates Mia in, in her spare time, uh, Mia tells me that she is a triathlete and a rock climber and that last summer she scaled her first big wall, which was all of 500 meters tall, I was trying to visualize that last night, and I didn't like what I saw, but uh, take my hat off to you for that. Um, and Antonio um, Antonio has a rather different uh, set of uh, uh, interests. Um, Antonio is a, um, is a, uh, a fiendish video gamer um, and has a sort of interesting point he made to me yesterday that uh, video games are an underrated art form uh, to be continued. Um, as a discussion point at some point in the podcast, perhaps. Um, but uh, just wanted to get to know what motivates you analytically. Um, what are your sort of areas of future interest? So perhaps, Mir, we'll start with you. Um, just ask you what the most challenging work you've ever done at, at the Institute is. Sure. Um, I don't think that's very hard to, to actually think of. I last In the last two years with a colleague, Dr. Lucy Borosudro, who's our defense economist and uh, in the defense and military analysis program, um, conducted research on how much China, how much revenue of the top eight state-owned enterprises in China is actually derived from their defense product act and R&D activity. Um, and this was a piece of work that really hasn't been done before for obvious reasons of uh, lack of transparency, um, you know, the lack of um, access to, to, to Chinese language or English language data. Um, but she and I poured over about, well, poured over the records of 400 plus Chinese companies um, that are parts of these eight SOEs to um, put together a methodology to do that, and that was listed in 2019. The results of that were listed for the first time in 2019 in the Defense News' Top 100 Defense Companies list. So that was a very challenging piece of work, um, filled a real gap in uh, the current understanding of the strength of Chinese state-owned enterprises in the defense sector, and a piece of work that I think she and I are both really proud of. 
And what was, I mean, that sounds like a Sisyphean task, I mean, going through all of those uh, websites. But what was the sort of key takeaway from you, for you from, from that work? Well, the key takeaway is that I, I think, though a lot can be done with Google Translate, having Chinese language skills is really important still and really useful. Um, it's also the other takeaway, two takeaways were, I think that the Chinese SOEs, according to our results, are a lot stronger than we assumed they would be. Um, nobody had ever put a number to this, but uh, in the past two years, uh, we would rank one Chinese SOE in the top five globally, according to uh, the amount of defense-related revenue. And the other takeaway is that this research might in the future become uh, more increasingly difficult. Um, we noticed that between the first year we conducted this research and collected our numbers, and last year there had been a significant change in the amount of information we could find even in Chinese. Um, and that's, I think, a reflection of uh, a clampdown of restriction in the amount of data that's uh, released in, in the public in, in China at the moment on these topics. Thank you, Mayor. Um, and Antonio, um, what's the most challenging work you've ever done at, this, at the Institute? Yeah, it is, it is quite difficult to, to pick one thing because I think because of the nature of uh, think tank work, every project you do, every research project is a bit different from what you did before. And I think the, the current one that I'm conducting is um, uh, quite a departure from what I've done before. So I've been doing quite a lot of work on Latin America security, especially Brazil and Colombia. And uh, recently, um, we've expanded this line of um, this stream of research on urban violence and conflicting cities to look at um, armed conflict affected uh, countries. So I'm currently conducting a project uh, funded by the Department for International Development in the UK, looking at how political violence emerges or is amplified in cities. Um, so we're looking, that, that took me to four countries um, last year, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Somalia, and Kenya. So there are four cities, one in each country for case studies, and I did extensive interviews. And um, so just figuring out how to do research and field research in conflict-affected countries and in a conflict-affected city has been a very interesting experience, very um, informative and very different because we have to think about where we're going to stay and what kind of security we're going to have as we move around. The restrictions you have are, are significant. Um, so that was that was quite different, but also very thought-provoking, um, trying to think about the different ways that cities are affected by conflict in comparison to when you look at a country or a region. So you look at diplomacy and uh, several uh, the political leadership and in cities there are so many other factors such as land prices and um, um, land uh, disputes over land and sectarian groups um, invisible borders between different ethnicities and so there are several new um, wouldn't say new but different dynamics from from what we are uh, here in the ISS we're um, wired to thinking. And in those four case studies, did you notice any commonalities, any sort of common threads? Yeah, there are a lot of commonalities. I, I think the, the role of cities for funding for uh, different, um, different armed groups is quite, um, is quite striking. Uh, th there is a tendency even for highly ideological and political actors to move into cities for funding and adopt, adopt much more uh, criminal uh, tendencies. Uh, another thing that was even more surprising to me was how 
common and how uh, widespread the issue of conflicts over land is. So these cities that, especially in conflict-affected cities, uh, countries, uh, people flow, people move from rural areas either for economic reasons or due to conflict and displacement, and they flock to cities, usually to the big cities where they think jobs are. Um, and, and the result of that is that land prices go up uh, tremendously, and then uh, it becomes much more profitable for um, entrepreneurs, illicit entrepreneurs, illicit groups, sometimes not even insurgents, but you know, simply mafias or even uh, militias affiliated to political uh, powerful figures to illegally acquire land and illegally sell land. So this is quite, quite striking as well. So the resources that people fight over in cities has more to do with the limited space available in cities and how different groups are crowded in that space fighting for influence or money or territory. So that, that was quite, quite interesting. So I'm going to, uh, the, the, my concluding question now for you both, um, I'm going to offer you a, a very generous fantasy budget um, for research. And um, I'd be really interested to hear what would be your the sort of dream area, the dream thing that you would uh, both like to research if you had generous resources and, and, and a good amount of time. Uh, Mayor, would you like to kick off? Uh, so many things to choose from. Uh, I think one thing that I would love to do at the moment is be able to come up with a new methodology um, to calculate China's defense spending more accurately. Something that, um, again, Dr. Lucie Bureau-Cidreau and I have been working on for the past year, um, the methodology that um, different institutes uh, use at the moment is um, dates back about 10 years, and considering all of the changes within the People's Liberation Army in, in China in the past five years, um, there's really a need to update this to gain more clarity and understanding. So the, the real level of Chinese defense spending from Mayor and Antonio, what about you? Well, um, my um, passion, my areas of interest are uh, quite sub-state in nature. So I tend to look at how um, things that happen more at the societal level impact um, security, even geopolitics or defense. But um, one thing that I would like to expand on what I'm doing now is to look more closely at um, a, a greater range of cities around the world to see how um, armed groups operate in cities and how they uh, control territories, they um, influence politics, um, and they affect the human security of people. Um, and perhaps that would also shed light on an interesting research question that the strategic studies community is increasingly interested in, which is how does global urbanization affect international security. So the world is, as, 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 as is often pointed out, including by me, the world is urbanizing quite quickly. Uh, the pace in terms of absolute numbers of people either arriving in cities or being born in cities in many regions, especially Africa and Asia, is um, unprecedented in absolute terms. So um, I'd like to look at how these uh, countries and cities are coping with that and the impact it has on people's and also national security. Interesting. So global ur urbanization and its connection with international security. We'll, we'll look forward to, to, to seeing more on these subjects uh, from the Institute in the months and years to come. Um, that brings us to the end of this uh, podcast session. Thank you very much for listening uh, to our first episode here. 
Uh, be sure to like, comment uh, on our podcasts um, and subscribe, of course, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever uh, um, you listen with. Uh, and we look forward very much to seeing uh, you next time for our next uh, podcast. Thank you very much. Bye.